everyone, and welcome to the Two Button Crew podcast. My name is Glenn, and I am joined by my co-host, Simeon. Hello. And today, we're going to be talking about Nintendo's fascination with the apocalypse. Uh, we have joked about this a lot in the past, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And so it's, it's high time that I think we actually examine um, all the instances of it and maybe discuss like the similarities and how Nintendo likes to approach the apocalypse and maybe why they're fascinated with the apocalypse. I'm really excited to jump into this very timely uh, topic. <laughs> I think we picked the perfect time to talk about this. Um, maybe too soon, but you know what? People been making all sorts of, uh, you know, I was going to say viral videos, but I don't. I don't think that would be in very good taste either. Um, Matt Pat's been making several uh, uh, virus-related um, videos on game theory, and so you know what? I I think that that will be okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, on a personal note, it seems like things are starting to stabilize, so maybe it's it's actually a good time to talk about this so it's not too soon but still timely i i agree right uh where where i am we're we're just starting to um let up on on a lot of things this weekend actually as of this recording so nice glad to hear it we we've joked about this before we're only going to talk about first party nintendo games because there's you know the apocalypse is a, a very popular oh. setting for video games. You know, you have mm-hmm. everything from like the Fallout series to uh, even argue things like uh, Bioshock is kind of sort of post-apocalyptic, so a, a, sort of more of a localized thing. So you know, maybe that doesn't count. But uh, a, a so fertile look- ground, to be sure. <laughs> yes, fertile ground in in the uh, the wasteland of the apocalypse. <laughs> Yes, in the radioactive fertile ground. So let's get into some examples here. First up is uh, Pikmin. Now, the Pikmin games, at first you may not realize that's an apocalyptic setting, uh, especially in the first game, because it's it's very green, there's lots of life everywhere, um, and this is going. We're going to see that this is actually a fairly common thing for Nintendo. But if you pay attention to your surroundings, you kind of, especially in the first game, you notice like there were tin cans and stuff scattered around. So it, it's sort of like you're wandering around in maybe a, a, a nature preserve or something that just, or, well, not nature preserve, like a, a public park or something where people have left a little bit of litter and it just hasn't been picked up yet. Uh, in, in the sequel, you start finding a bunch of random uh, treasure that, or random trash that you try to pass off as treasure because it's stuff that people aren't uh, on Olimar's planet of, uh, what is it, Hakotate, I believe? Uh, they're not familiar yep, with. And you start to realize it's a bunch of stuff like Duracell batteries and like stuff that we, we recognize. And you start to realize, oh, maybe this, is, this actually is Earth and something happened to all the people there and i think Miyamoto has actually confirmed that it takes place on earth that uh human beings have gone extinct yeah it makes you wonder just how long it's been because some of the stuff is you know kind of intact it hasn't completely eroded away but you wonder 
is Olimar completely alien, or have people just evolved to be that tiny to survive um, on on a different environment, or if uh, you know the wildlife there obviously is not the same as our own. We don't have living, you know, mushroom-backed things or um, birds that grow out of the ground yet. So um, you kind of wonder, I think that's kind of a common theme, is how long has it been like this? How long has it taken to get like this? Yeah, and uh, one, one of the things that really with Pikmin that's kind of left open-ended is did humanity cause their own extinction, or has it just been so long that you know nature kind of ran its course and something came along and uh in or heck maybe human beings still exist like you said i never even consider this as a possibility maybe olimar actually is like some sort of evolved human being and they just they went to other planets and because of the environment they uh, after a really long time they just evolved to be very small i i find that personally a little bit unlikely because um i don't think people would evolve to not breathe oxygen um that's that's kind of (laughs) essential it's like how do you do that (laughs) (laughs) it's sort of like in the princess pride with the uh the i forget like wesley or whatever the the pirate uh you know one of the main characters he's talking about this one poison that's so potent that even the smallest amount can kill a man um and then when asked why he didn't die when he drank it, it's like, oh, I built up an immunity for it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, how did you get it in the first place? How can you build up an immunity when when you couldn't even have a little bit of it? That scene has always intrigued me, by the way. I know this is a, a side note and totally not video game related, but, I mean, it's the Princess Bride. You got to talk about it that scene has always stuck in my mind from the very first time that i watched it i think that was like the most memorable scene to me yeah oh gosh i need to watch that movie again oh me too okay so yeah pikmin pikmin is a big one of course um especially being confirmed that it was earth um but I think it's nice to see that it was like, not not that it's good that the apocalypse happened and humanity is pretty much wiped out, but that it's like lush and green and not a wasteland. And I think that's, that's not always going to happen as we see um, throughout the rest of these. But uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the I reasons I, it's, I suspect it's a little bit that nicer. maybe the you know quote-unquote apocalypse wasn't like nuclear warfare or something though then again when you have walking right. mushrooms it's maybe maybe it, it was irradiated <laughs> and everything got used to it like i know in chernobyl um like some of the animals there just have a much higher antioxidant or something like that i, I don't remember what but something that kind of helps them deal with the radiation and so they've just adapted mm-hmm. and it's one of the, it's like this weird thing where this place is irradiated wasteland where human beings really should not go because it's dangerous and yet the animals there have in a very short time in like the what 50 years since the uh, actually it's probably been longer than that 60 i don't know um i don't know when it happens right <laughs> i don't know history uh you know that's that's why i, I have a brother who's a 
who's a history major, just so I can ask him. Um, <laughs> That's okay. This is this is an issue with us. Mm-hmm. Like Scott doesn't know, li- literally knows nothing about history. You could say the word Chernobyl, and he probably has no clue what it is. You could say World War Two, and he hardly knows what that is. He probably doesn't know who was involved in World War Two. Um, uh, yeah, World War Two. They but, really jumped the shark with that one. Uh, I mean, I I appreciate them trying to go bigger <laughs> with that one, but they took like they took out all the moral complexity from the first one, and it just it, I I don't know why people like that one so much more than World War One. I mean, World War One was depressing. But, don't get me wrong. Have, Maybe we, they like the after World War One they thought, oh, you know, it's really simple. There's there's the good guy, there's the bad guy, and that's it. Yeah, that and and that Ferdinand guy, he he wasn't important in the least. <laughs> anyway, uh, but what I'm saying is, we have a serious issue in like understanding history because if you don't understand history, which well, okay. I was hoping, I, 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 like, I'm joking, of course. I'm actually, I I try to understand history pretty well. I'm just really bad with like dates and time span, and that like extends oh, into okay. real life. I have a very poor sense of time. I also can't keep rhythm. I think it's related. <laughs> I, I, that, that's good because all we would have to go off of then is like what I've seen in documentaries, like or at least what I saw in documentaries that I watched when I was like twelve. So yeah. this is this is good. I mean, I know a little bit about it. I know that it was mostly ignoring safety protocols that caused it, and that it wasn't like a giant fireball. It was actually an explosion of steam, irradiated steam. So, okay, yeah. All right. There's, there's. Uh, anyway, oh. I'm, we're, we're getting lost in the weeds here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we're gonna move on to the next one. Uh, yeah. Unless you have something else that you want to say about Pikmin. Um, uh, I I really didn't care for Pikmin. I played the first one one time, I think, and even though I love um, Majora's Mask, I I was way too afraid of the the whole time element. Oh yeah, Pikmin one so was very I, stressful for me as a kid. I had a thing about time limits when I was younger. Um, so Pikmin 1, I understand if you don't like it. I would definitely recommend you go back and try uh, Pikmin 2 or Pikmin 3 because they're, they get rid of the... Um, well, Pikmin 3 has a time limit, but you can actually extend it through your own actions. And if you screw something up, you can rewind, rewind it. Um, okay. So Pikmin 3 is, in my opinion, the best in the series. Um, and it... If the rumors are true, it you know as of this recording, it may be getting released sometime this summer or in the fall for the Switch. So that's a good time to to pick it up and try it. I I might have to do that. the The gameplay mechanics are not what turned me off. It was the time limit. So I will have to give that a shot. Yeah. So uh, let's see. So next up is Splatoon. Now, Splatoon is a lot like yes. Pikmin, I would say, in terms of theme. So, um, they reveal in their, um, if, if you get, like, the, what do they call them, the sunken scrolls in the first game, they reveal that uh, this is, pl- the world of Splatoon takes place on planet Earth, and humanity uh, went extinct at some point, 
and then the inklings evolved from squids uh you know much like mm-hmm. in that what was that one documentary that uh i want to say it was discovery channel did way back in the early 2000s it was like um it was about the world after humans go extinct, and it ended with squids evolving to be intelligent. Are you me. serious? I have not heard about this. Yeah, I, for the life of me, I can't remember what it was called, but I'm sure someone out there listening knows what I'm talking about. Um, one of the things I found interesting is that mammals went extinct in that documentary. I was like, really? <laughs> well, I mean... Maybe they were seeing the uh, the global warming trend and saying, hmm, well, if we're all underwater, many of the mammals will have a difficult time. Um, besides uh, Kevin Costner, of course, he will survive. Um, Dennis Hopper, not so much. Um, but yeah, this one, this one, I find interesting. Well, Dennis Hopper's not um, isn't a mammal. He's he's a highly evolved reptile. Wasn't isn't isn't that? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's oh my gosh. Uh, I am I'm intrigued by that movie. I'm I'm afraid to see it from all that I've heard. I still haven't seen it yet. Um, but I have one friend who is so thoroughly intrigued by it and says that if you don't consider it a Mario movie. It's a pretty good movie, and it's it's very I, hard to I'm separate the to two. Have but I would agree with that. It's actually an it's a pretty decent movie if you just try to separate. It's a terrible Mario movie. It's an okay, um, schlocky science fiction action movie. So it, so it's like Rise of Skywalker. Um, I want to know. I haven't seen uh, Rise of Skywalker, and I. Um, don't particularly care for Star Wars to begin with. Uh, oh, I think I've, I've oh. mentioned that once on the podcast and then uh, Audacity crashed and so it got cut from the episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we got to be careful mentioning that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, anyway, yeah, we won't get off on that tangent. Uh, Splatoon. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, I I don't have a lot of um, experience with this one either, uh, but it does fascinate me as far as um, the aesthetic and the story behind it. Um, you know, especially how you know you see language, how they adopted certain elements of human culture. Um, I don't think squids would necessarily come up with TV, but maybe they would. Well, actually, and like, um, they... you remember how they did the uh, Splatfests, right? Right. They, they had an old, like, fax machine that they dug up, and it would randomly <laughs> start printing stuff out that it got from stray satellite signals that were glitching out. Are you serious? Yeah, so elements of their culture actually were influenced by humanity beforehand. Them digging up these old relics, and it's like, what the heck is this? This is cool. You, see, they they take the, at least hopefully they take the good stuff that we have and uh, and run with it. I, I, I think it's interesting 
like I think it's cool that they even even took squids. Like how many video games do you know? Well, you probably know games with squids. Do you know any games like where squids are the main characters? Uh, besides this. Let's see. There was I think it came out after Splatoon, but there's like um, an indie game that has sort of a Game Boy aesthetic called Mr. Taco. That's uh, Taco with a K. It's the <laughs> Japanese word for uh, squid, I think. Okay, yeah. It I think it's it's a unique a unique premise, but like a fertile ground. Um, yeah, weren't we they originally did... going to be like rabbits or something? That was their first idea. I think so. I think I do remember hearing something about that early on, as they had a different um, concept. But with with squids, you may think, oh, they're just you know swimming things. Um, but we, of course, this is a different cephalopod. But we did an episode. I can't remember which episode it was. Um, I want to say something like real life pokemon or pokemon that were... i think it was something having to do with real life pokemon and we showed that clip of the mimic octopus have you seen these um no and now that i think of it i think taco might actually be octopus i may have been wrong about that but continue okay anyway uh uh mimic octopus octopi like see a different creature and basically like morph their body to not just look like but also act like other creatures like you can see an octopus literally running like a a bipedal thing on the ocean floor okay I, and it's I, I think it's I've, the most yeah I, I think i've seen these things yeah it's, it's weird <laughs> yeah and and just to see like okay they took some element of that and said, okay, well, they're adaptable. They would survive an apocalypse. And if they did survive an apocalypse, this might be the kind of world that they adapt um, unto themselves. Anyway, moving up is uh, Nintendo's uh, most recent uh, Zelda game, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And I'd say this is a much more traditional post-apocalyptic setting uh, compared to the previous two. And that it's something horrible happened. It was violent. It was bloody. It destroyed um, pretty much civilization. Though there are little pockets um, left over. But um, like the previous ones, it's what I would call a verdant apocalypse where... Um, except for a few places where there are pools of like Ganon's uh, goop, which they call malice, um, mm-hmm. the the world is still fairly green. Right. There wasn't. It wasn't a complete wipeout. It was mostly a destruction of the civilization as opposed to the nature. Yeah, and so I, I guess that's a running theme: is Nintendo doesn't like destroying trees in their apocalypse, <laughs> apocalypses. <laughs> yeah, well, until we get to the second to last one on our list, that one, that one's pretty severe. We'll we'll get to that one though. But um, I think yeah. this is a really interesting way of doing it because we do have the destruction, but like even in the flashbacks. You see 
it, the infrastructure has severely suffered, but like the people are still around and you don't see too much like you see that they're like oppressed and they're scared but you don't see like oh it was like this these booming metropolises and now we're just in these little villages they either have bounced back really quickly or um not too much has changed in day-to-day life yeah and that's one of those things that I don't know. I, I both. I th- that's something that I felt like maybe the game could have done a little bit better because it's like it's only been a hundred years. You think people would still be a little bit shaken by that, but at the same time, uh, if there's anything I, I've learned, it's that people people get used to stuff really quickly. So maybe maybe True. it's more realistic that way. I and guess so, I guess so. I mean, if you look at our recent circumstances. Um, you know, obviously it's shaken the world quite a bit. We haven't dealt with something to this extent in our lifetime. Um, and obviously there are hardships and difficulties even now bouncing back from it. But the way that we adapted our way of life to fit the situation, we got used to it pretty darn quick. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, a, a lot of people did it voluntarily, which is uh, pretty cool to see. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, you know, we need to have these policies set in place and set in stone. It's like, no, most people, if you tell them, hey, please do this because it's it's safer, they'll, they'll go along with it. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, what was I thing so yeah one of the interesting things though is i don't feel like the um i I feel like only the highlands really got the uh the short end of the stick in this one because if you really look at it like uh gerudo town uh the goron town uh the Mm -hmm. zora um town and the rito town they all they all basically are effectively untouched outside of the divine beasts but the Divine Beasts don't look like they've actually caused... They look like they're causing problems. They haven't actually destroyed anything yet. So. Right. Yeah, I see that. I see that as well. Um, and they... You know, the Hylians, they're a little bit scattered. Whereas the rest of them, they're pretty well, you know, put together. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. You don't see a lot of monsters like in their towns, whereas the uh, with the with the Hylians, they're pretty well surrounded. Um, you know, they're kind of clumped off into different sections. Yeah, but um, another Zelda game that kind of has a post-apocalyptic feel uh, is uh, the Legend of Zelda: The Wind Waker, um, mm-hmm. and so what happens in that game, and you know, I guess spoiler warnings for everything we're going to be talking about, but we find out that the wor- world, yeah, a little late, I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, the world has been flooded, and Hyrule is, technically it's underwater, but there's like a bubble. So, you know, the water is above it, it's just not in the water, 
Right. So does that count as being submerged or not? I don't. I don't know. I. I would. I would say. Oh. oh I mean, man, if I hold a bucket of water I would above my so. head, I'm technically underwater. Am I not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it's like if you put, like, if you emptied a snow globe of its water and then dunked it in water. Like, I would say it's submerged. Like, even though the inside isn't completely inundated with water. I mean, you get that anyway with underwater caves. You get pockets of air. I mean, I guess. Maybe they. Maybe you don't. But I would say it's submerged. <clears throat> well, regardless of what's uh, really going on there, the, the world has been flooded and everybody lives on the mountaintops, which are now islands. And so civilization was basically destroyed. It's just, you know, they're, they're now living in water world. Um, I don't know which character was Kevin Costner, but... Uh... <laughs> Probably Link. Well, no. Is there... I haven't played through Wind Waker. I've helped Scott on little parts of it. Is there... An... I'm sure there's an old grizzled mentor uh yeah orca from outset uh, okay yeah that's probably kevin costner then okay. he, he's the main character in Waterworld, but i know that there are children in that movie i haven't seen it but i know a little bit about it anyway i, I haven't seen it either reference so maybe we shouldn't make jokes about it <laughs> <laughs> no people are gonna be like oh they're they're totally getting all of this wrong. Anyway, uh, so I'm I'm unfamiliar with Wind Waker. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you know Hyrule's underwater and um, the land has been flooded, but I am not sure if I know what led to that. I think we're okay. Past so spoiler territory. Yeah. What what led to that? And this isn't actually a um, really a spoiler because it's mentioned. It's in like the intro. Um, info dump in the game they have like this little intro cutscene where they're like reading off a scroll um but what happened was ganon returned and everybody's like oh okay well the hero in time will fix it and he never shows up and they're then they're they go oh crud uh goddesses help us uh, and so the, the three golden goddesses, which, my gosh, like the, the cosmology of the Legend of Zelda series is really confusing because I have no idea, like, because they added, ever since they added Hylia in um, Skyward Sword, I have no idea who's in control of what, but right the, the goddesses, the three golden goddesses apparently haven't uh, gone off to parts unknown or are still actively listening to prayer. Uh, and so they decide, okay, well, if Ganon's going to destroy Hyrule, we're just going to flood it. <laughs> I don't know what they were really hoping to accomplish with that, but yeah, they flood Hyrule to, um, like, contain Ganondorf or Ganon or whatever, and that's, the, yeah, that's that's what happened. Handy. Handy. Wow. <laughs> Well, be careful what you pray for, I guess, is the moral of that story. But, yeah, so uh, the Wind Waker takes place in a post-Diluvian world where um, the world is flooded and society has rebuilt. And it's one of those things where it's like, 
it, it kind of shows the again another verdant apocalypse, I guess, uh, where like you know, there are still plants and trees and all of that. It's post cataclysmic, right? Um, but the uh, civilization—it's it, clearly been like by that point, it's been a very long time, and civilization's kind of adjusted. Right. Right. I think there's only the the last. We have one more, and then the last two on our list are probably civilizations that haven't adjusted, mm-hmm. um, with with the um, exception of Pikmin. Uh, we'll get we'll get to the last two. So, um, but before that, we have Custom Robo, which I find real. Now you've played through this game, right, Glenn? Several times. So, several times, yes. This is a fantastic game. I don't think people talk about it enough. And um, it blew I, I my think mind. It's criminal that we haven't had uh, a new one in like what fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. Because I think we got one soon after the DS came out, and then yeah, and that one's really good too. Um, it's it's very different in tone than the GameCube one. Yep, but. And I kind of chalked that I didn't, up to the difference between like what the GameCube was trying to accomplish and what the DS was trying to accomplish in terms of where Nintendo was at at that point in its history. I I agree. I I didn't make it all the way through the game, but I do remember it being different, a little bit different in mechanic, which I it was all right, but uh, um, for the most part kept kept the theme and. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. This game a, blew my mind. We have a whole episode of the podcast devoted to that. So if you want to hear more about Custom Robo, go, you know, go yeah. listen to that one after you're done with this. So, so the story on this one is that um, there's this thing that Rahu destroyed mm-hmm. the world, right? Right. And the people moved into this dome, which. You you start this game in this weird setting, and you kind of like I don't know you you feel like the world is small. I think they they intentionally made it to where you're like, well, I really like I can see everything, and then you get to the point in the game where it's like, what do you know about the guy asks you, what do you know about the world, mm-hmm. and then like you know you say it's flat or it's round. And then you, if you say it's round, like somebody comments, like that's absolutely ridiculous. Why would you even think that? Of course, it's flat. Of course, it's just this tiny little uh, uh, square of land that we that we know. But it's much more than that, and it's all been destroyed by this um, this monster. Yeah, and. That one is, uh, of all the examples, that's probably the spookiest one. Because um, it, honestly, it yeah. kind of crosses over into, like, Lovecraftian cosmic horror. Because they never explain what Rahu is or where it came from. No. they you, you know kind of what it can do, but it's a mystery. Because you're used to um, diving into these um, robots and... Like there's, and the the people control the robots, but there's this thing that doesn't have a human controlling it, and having it run rogue 
and having seeing it not just with excuse me seeing it have more than just robotic pieces and seeing like organic matter on it it's it brings a whole new dimension to what you think it's possible and and it grows too it does it and you know it's like a living thing and so it it is very different your attention is called to it and it it is really spooky when you find your way out into what is left of the world and all that's left is you know a wasteland with a few like weird creepy carnival things you're you're left to be like oh man yeah what, and, <laughs> what and really happened here kind of me out was um the tunnel leading up to it so uh you know mm. you're, as you're leaving the dome there's this tunnel that goes through and it has like a sort of a space background yeah and uh then you get to this wasteland there are these huge ravines that just go on for what seems like ever and it's like okay what yeah and maybe this is just a, a kid who wasn't really thinking in terms of oh this is just a special effect but i was i had to stop and think and go okay what's the extent of the damage here is the planet earth still a sphere <laughs> yeah no i thought that too i was like i don't think i didn't think it was i thought it was like broken apart yeah so it's uh it, it you know when especially when you're a kid that's pretty unnerving um yeah agreed and who who would have thought i mean i know that nintendo has like creepy stuff especially when it comes to like earthbound and stuff but they don't do it too often especially without some sort of lighthearted thing to bring it up and i guess that there's like jokes and stuff in it and parts of it are colorful but they went like full on dark for this mm. and that's not common yeah anyway so moving on uh we're going to be talking <laughs> about kirby yay uh so yay! in 64 uh one of the plants you go to is a plant called shiver star it's it's a frozen over icy um I don't know. I'm not sure it's it's fair to call it a wasteland because we are still talking Kirby here, but right, know, it's, it, it's just a big ball of ice and snow. But if you pay really close attention on the map screen, you notice that you can actually see the continents, uh, North America and Africa and all of that, uh, on the surface of the planet. And you realize, oh my gosh, this is a frozen Earth that's, you know, and there's no signs of human life anywhere on the planet. Not only anywhere on the planet, but if I'm not mistaken, I don't think anywhere in Kirby's, like, lore, I can't remember a single human uh, Well, there is the, the painter girl, uh, Adeline. That's true. That so, is true. I never thought of that. But it, it is does. Is she like the last human? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, in in a colorful, cartoony world like Kirby, it's sometimes hard to tell if someone's like a human or if they're like supposed to be some sort of elf or something. Uh, right. That's true. So I presume Adeline's human. Uh, I don't know. Um. 
Anyway, where was I? So, and, you know, you start out just running through snowy fields, but you also, like, at one point, you... It looks like you're running through a mall and then, like, a factory, and it ends with you fighting this um, robot and what I presume mm-hmm. is a military base. So it, it raises some questions, um, especially since some of the stuff you see in the factory is really weird. Yeah, don't they have, like, preserved stuff in the factory? Yeah, they, they have creatures, like, floating around in tanks in the background. Um, and it raises a lot of questions also in terms of how big Kirby is, because I know from, like, the Smash Brothers series, Kirby's officially, like, supposed to be eight inches tall, I think. Really? Yeah, but he seems to be the same size as the, um, you know, he, he doesn't look that out of place in the mall. It's not like you're playing Chibi-Robo or anything. But right. then when you get to the factory, you see, like, a cat, and the cat's much bigger than Kirby, and, you know, be like, okay, if Kirby were eight inches tall, that'd be about to proportion, and, you know, maybe the the assembly line stuff here is actually the kind of small, because that's how machines often are. I, I propose a timeline here. Okay. So, the world, um, humans either go extinct or leave the world, and... Uh, you know, animals kind of like evolve and stuff, and you have the weird creatures that you see in Pikmin, and then all Mars people come in and inhabit the world and create the malls and stuff that you see that Kirby goes through initially, and then that way you see both the both sizes. I don't know, taken care of so that you, you know, can considering see, like, how that, convoluted that... Kirby lore has actually gotten here in like the last ten years, <laughs> that that may be a possibility. Like I don't know. I I just spitballing, but maybe, who knows? No, seriously, like go try to look up Kirby lore at at some point. Like they've they've been sneaking a lot of stuff in the a lot of subtext in the Kirby games here of late. Really? I'm gonna I will have to check that out. That's one series that i really haven't um delved into as far as storyline goes anyway um so let's talk about um some of the commonalities between these um these games yeah and one we've already mentioned before is that they don't typically follow like the traditional um fallout style apocalypse where the uh you know the world is bombed out you know with the one exception we mentioned, the world is bombed out mm-hmm. and everything is destroyed and all of that. And it typically doesn't appear to be the result of like necessarily even war or violent conflict, which is kind of where our, um, at least here in the West, where our uh, general idea of post-apocalyptic um, fiction comes from. I I wonder how much of that, and this is, Maybe this is getting a little too real for a video game podcast, but I wonder how much of that is a historical and cultural thing for them. Because, you know, nuclear bombs were dropped on Japan. And having that as a theme in a game might not be something that they would necessarily want to do right away. I mean, you have something like Godzilla... Um, that kind of it it pictures that, but not exactly in the same sense, and not a whole 
a whole apocalypse. But I yeah, wonder how much of that is. That that's definitely a good point. Is that um, I, as I understand it, uh, Japan is a little bit sensitive about that topic for obvious sure. reasons. Um, I think also post-apocalyptic fiction, um, typically God's roots in like the Cold War when the idea of you know uh, the world being destroyed by war seemed very real because you had World War One, then you had its, in my opinion, lackluster sequel, uh, and <laughs> it's like, well, what what do you do after that? You blow up the planet, right? Right. Well, we they had that weapons. The weapons started to stockpile, and you know, uh, mutually assured destruction was thrown around and seen as a possibility, a real possibility. And so, yeah, I I'm not surprised to see this sort of thing take off. But it is it is nice to see um, that it can be handled in a way that isn't all gloom and doom. Because I feel I feel like that is that has been especially in other mediums how it's been taken is yes people adapt but society never really adapted or it maladapted we have stuff like the Hunger Games or um, that Hunger Games ripoff that I am blanking on right now. Um, Divergence? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, the Divergence series, yeah. Yeah, I remember Um, talking to someone who really liked it, and they explained it to me, and this is the first time I'd ever heard about Divergent, and I I just heard that, and it's like, that sounds like the most hackneyed cliche. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and... It, I think that's because we've gotten used to apocalypse means um, if there's any adaptation, it's maladaptation and it's all bad. Yeah, and it's like well, and it's, all that. Really, it sounds more like yeah, dystopian, dystopian fiction that uses uh, a cataclysmic event or whatever to um, to as a framing device, as as a setup, a, a literary tool. That's the word. Right. Sure. It's nice to see Nintendo, with their genius, taking a different route with that, with these um, verdant um, apocalypses. Yeah, and I mean, if I were to do a a story in a post-apocalyptic setting, I probably would do something like that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So it it appeals to my sensibilities on, on top of just being something different and refreshing, but... Um, that brings us to the the second issue is that typically the apocalypse is not the like fr- front and center and it like you know something like Metro right. 20 what's it I don't know I haven't played it but uh, the Metro series mm-hmm. or Fallout um, you know the the apocalypse is front and center it's it's part of right. the main attra- it's one of the main attractions it's like okay you're in a post-apocalyptic it's unavoidable world, apocalyptic world excuse me it, it's gritty it's it's dark um people are desperate so on and so forth here it's more it's more like uh oh by the way did you know this is this is planet earth what <laughs> right yeah yeah you don't really see it until it it hits you in the face I mean, uh, with, with those few mm-hmm. few exceptions. Yeah, with like The Legend of Zelda, which is, again, it's 
it's a destructive apocalypse, but it's a verdant one. It were like the people in particular were targeted, which I find interesting. Right. Um, so that's that, that's playing with the trope a little bit, but yeah, um, Pikmin, Splatoon, um, heck, even Kirby sixty four, uh, and Pokemon if we count it. Uh, right. That's all just background fluff. That's all either implied or stated outside of the game by the creators or whatever. So it's really interesting seeing how they like to incorporate this element um, without it actually being a major part of the game itself. You know, you can enjoy the game in its entirety without knowing that. Right. I And I, I also think that that Maybe maybe there are other companies that do this, but I think it it points to just how beloved or endearing I should say Nintendo's games are and how beloved they are by people that they could slip in details like this and that they would be noticed by so many people enough to talk about them because I I don't I don't see other there it's either upfront or or not included or not noticed yeah it's uh and it's it's just kind of a strange uh, decision so let let's examine it why why does mm-hmm. nintendo uh have a fascination with the apocalypse and especially since they're not making it like a major plot detail in most instances um, so first I, and foremost, and this doesn't really, because Nintendo doesn't really make this a major part of it, um, this isn't really a major, uh, contributing factor, but it is something that I guess I should mention just, uh, for the sake of being thorough, uh, and it's that the apocalypse is what I would call an adventure friendly setting. Um, because... Mm-hmm. You know, in the modern day, uh, you can walk out your front door and be pretty confident that nothing interesting is going to happen to you. Yes. You know, present circumstances, uh, well, even, you know, even in the present circumstances, like, I go outside and most people, like, you see people walking around all the time. It's it's not that... Right. I don't know. It's one of the benefits of living in Oklahoma is that um, (laughs) stuff just doesn't happen here. Um, it's yeah. as I've always joked about. It's like they're, they're never going to make a Fallout game set in Oklahoma because they the Chinese probably forgot to bomb Oklahoma in the Fallout series. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I I agree with you on on this one um, that it is uh, it is adventure friendly and it's the sort of thing that would intrigue. I, I shouldn't say intrigue me, but it something that I have been vocal about, especially with the release of this most recent uh, Animal Crossing game, and I have no problem with people playing Animal Crossing. Knock yourselves out, but I have I have no interest in something like that because it's too familiar to where when I play video games, which is more and more rare now mm-hmm. um unfortunately i feel that more. i want to i <laughs> i'm glad i'm not alone uh i want to experience something that i am not going to experience in real life 
for sure. Like when I sit down and play a game, I want it to maybe emotionally hit home if there's some sort of emotionally emotional thing. But like if I can do whatever it is that it um it is I'm attempting to do in the video game, like pay off my mortgage or just like go around and talk to people and um like like the Sims or whatever, like that doesn't grab me. I if there's an apocalypse and the world has vastly changed and the environment is different and the things that I'm doing are um, more than just you know going out to eat, that is going to grab me at least. That's that's going to be a big pull. So making something that's not safe, um, even if it is verdant um, and it's it's pleasant, if it's not safe and it's different, then um, it's going to grab me. Yeah. Anyway, but. Uh, something you mentioned was intrigue, and I think that's probably mm-hmm. one of the um, biggest reasons that Nintendo does this, is that um, it's it's easy to make a fantasy world and just have it completely disconnected from uh, our, our world, but when you like mm-hmm. somehow link them together, but you don't fully explain how you got there, so it's like, okay, this is our world, but all the people are gone. Well, how that happened? That immediately yeah. hooks people, and they go, "Okay, I'm I'm interested in this now because there are questions here that I'm, you know, and you know they're never going to answer it. They don't have to. I kind of prefer if they didn't in a lot of cases. But it it, it does. Have you? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, did did you see uh, Lost when it was coming out, or have you seen Lost at all? No. So. Um, J.J. Abrams, who also did the <laughs> Star Wars, uh, two of the more recent Star Wars movies, he has <clears throat> a storytelling philosophy that you kind of just touched on, um, which is um, the mystery box philosophy. Is you know you he bombards the audience with just mystery boxes to where, um, as opposed to you know setting a Basically, he makes that makes you ask questions like why or how. Like if you even just flippantly drop in, you know, oh, this is actually, you know, post-apocalyptic, um, you know, planet Earth, you s- instantly start to ask how or why. And even if it is a background detail, you it draws you in and and hooks you. And you you start looking for other clues or consistencies with that to try and find out what exactly is it is that's going on. Mm. So yeah, it's it is something because and also it, it makes it kind of personal as well because we are humans and so if we find out that you know like in the world of Pikmin that humans are gone, uh, then right. you know it's sort of like well I'm a human what what <laughs> you know. So yeah. we, we kind of project our current world onto that as well and sort of gets us to look around and start asking questions as well. I don't know. I'm making it sound like it's, it's a huge political statement or something. I don't really think it is. but <laughs> No, no. I, I totally get what you're saying, though. It, it is that, that intrigue, and it makes you ask the questions because it is like, well, you know, 
what what is it that we did what is it something that we're doing now i i I think that we i think that it's meant to ask those questions however far deep you go in i think it is meant to make you stop and think and that we should Mm -hmm. um another thing is going back to sort of you know the projecting yourself onto it is emotional impact i don't know about you but when Mm -hmm. uh I saw the the wasteland and custom robo. That was like getting slapped in the face. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, it is a slap in the face, and like a real sense of dread. Like there there are few games that I've played that gave me a real sense of dread. Um, one of those was custom robo. The other one was um, Metroid Prime: The Phase On Mines really and the uh, um the crashed uh space station um the, both of those gave me a real sense of dread and custom robo for how, however excuse me for however you know nice it looks on the outside when when it takes that turn um it it really like gripped me emotionally um, giving me a sense of dread and a sense of urgency. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's a, um, it, it, it's a good way to, to have an emotional impact on people. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can be, have it be a big reveal. You can have it just be sort of that, like in Kirby, that sudden uneasy realization that sort of makes you go back through the environments, double checking everything, and going, "Oh yeah, this does look familiar." So, um, it, it definitely it can be very emotionally resonant. Um, and I think lastly, and we touched on this a little bit previously, but I think Japanese culture just this um, like the way Nintendo does Apocalypse is in uh, particular. Um, Japanese culture just kind of has this fascination if you like go through video games and anime and stuff with um Mm -hmm. cataclysmic events that sort of cause social upheaval you know there's um like anime examples uh darker than black uh cowboy bebop has something like that where the like at one point they accidentally in the show's history they accidentally blow up the moons you know i think akira (laughs) i've never seen akira but i think it has stuff to that extent I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Attack on Titan is also like that. Oh yeah, Attack on Titan. Um, that's a good example. Yeah, I I definitely see that, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that you're right about um, Akira or Akira or however that's pronounced. I'm pretty sure that's also. I think, the, um, I think technically it's something along the lines of Akira or something, but oh I, yeah, I Akira. Speak, yeah, yeah. I don't speak Japanese. But yeah, and if if you look at Japanese history, it actually makes a lot of sense. They um they were isolationists for a really long time. So mm. like up until the 19th century, they were basically doing the um the samurai uh, thing. Feudal so they, system. they were yeah feudalism. So they there was like a period for like three or four hundred years where their society just didn't really technologically advance. And then suddenly mm-hmm. you have uh, uh, Commodore Perry uh, show up and uh, you know open up trade with them using gunboat uh, diplomacy, and they suddenly go, "Oh, hey, 
society has, has really changed. We should play catch up. So rapid, rapid modernization that, you know, completely upends the, the social order of things. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, you know, this it, in uh, World War II, uh, the, the big finale of that was uh, they got nuked. Not once, but twice. Yeah. So, right. Um, and so Japan is, is a culture that I think they, they really have this um, much more than any other uh, modern industrialized culture, this kind of understanding of what it's like to have everything change just very, very quickly. And that's just, uh, you, you can see it all over uh, Japanese media where they have like this combination of like really traditional stuff next to hyper modern stuff. So, Right. Yeah, I was I was going to make that comment that that seems to be a constant struggle. Not that it's not a, a a constant or a common theme in what we have with the um, traditional versus the modern. I think I think for them it's more of a conflict. I think for us basically it's it's almost always played for comedy that. Oh, here's this old codger that doesn't understand the current trends or. Um, well, the I mean, current, it can be, it can be uh, played mores. for drama. I, I remember reading online someone criticizing um, criticizing Pixar, and he said, you know, after a certain point, if you look at what the plot structure of every Pixar movie is, it's ultimately the traditional way versus uh, a newer way. It's old versus new. Really, I wow, I never made that connection i'm gonna have to go back and think through yeah, those i think it might have yeah. been like finding nemo that was where that started but um it's one mm. of those things where i go back and it's like yeah i kind of can't unsee that though even then i guess toy story and toy story 2 had elements of that um oh sure absolutely especially toy story 2 yeah, but then again, it's one of those things where maybe it, that's just such a very general theme that it's sort of like the the concept of the monomyth. It's like it's just so flexible; you can kind of fit it to everything. Is even if it's um, after a point, it kind of stops being useful because of that. Right, right, right. So, well, um, like like all tropes. But uh, yeah, so. Uh, Anything else you have uh, have to say about that, or I I I don't think so. I think we we pretty well covered that. All right. Well, and now for uh, now for the fun part. Uh, what's your favorite apocalypse? My favorite apocalypse is hmm probably I'm gonna go with Custom Robo because. It was not only an integral part of the story, but it was it was emotionally gripping, and like there are a lot of games that you know I could you know think about the story or whatever, but that that one really stuck with me, especially because of those um, apocalyptic themes, and um, it's. I don't know. There's a lot, just a lot of cool things about that. A lot of unique things about um, Custom Robo and the way they handled the apocalypse that uh, um, I, I really appreciated. 
Yeah, um, I, I would say I probably, uh, I, I would agree with that. Custom Robo's my favorite just because it's the most, um, it, it definitely was the one of the most shocking moments I've ever experienced. And, you know, part of that's probably because mm-hmm. I was a kid, but um, one of the most shocking moments I've ever experienced in a video game. And yeah, um, I'd say if I had to choose a runner-up, probably Pikmin. Um, sure. Yeah, and that probably because just because, like we said, it's it's so laid back. Like it, it isn't some sort of um, oh humans doomed. You know, we we have no idea. Honestly, I kind of assumed that it is just something like some natural disaster or um, per, I don't know, perhaps even a virus. Uh, oh, to keep oh. it to- topical. <laughs> Uh, you know, just came out and it just weakened the human race, and they eventually just sort of slowly got phased out. Like it, yeah. it gives me the impression that it. I don't know. It, I guess it's just that it's so open to interpretation that it. Um, it, it doesn't it. It doesn't feel threatening in a weird way. Yeah, or preachy. Yeah, or preachy. But. Anyway, so um, I think we've uh, we basically said everything that we can on uh, Nintendo and its strange relationship to the apocalypse. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I I just hope that uh, everybody who has been affected by this virus that um, um, you're doing well physically, emotionally, whether you've been impacted um, yourself or a a family member or somebody close to you has been um, uh, struck with this virus. I just uh, um, hope that uh, you have hope. Um, We are people that adapt, and uh, things will go back to some sort of new normal very soon, and uh, um, the world is not over yet. Yes, it's good to know that uh, unless something... Uh, changes uh, for the worst that we are we ourselves are not in an actual apocalypse um, yes that's, <laughs> yeah you know, that's something you can say every day you know even if you hate your job or whatever it's like well at least I'm not living in the apocalypse so, <laughs> yes. I sometimes I have to wonder if some people would actually prefer that <laughs> <laughs> I, I when you said that I had this image of um, I'm not sure. I sh- I'm sure you've seen the the comic of or the the gif of the the dog in the burning house drinking mm-hmm. his coffee, saying this is fine. <laughs> yes. But anyway, so uh, thank you for listening to another episode of the Two Bunny Crew podcast. Um, my name is Glenn, and this is Simeon. Once again, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. Uh.